0: May 25, 1977, Star Wars re- was released at theaters across the country, but George Lucas was nowhere to be found. He was in Hawaii. He was at a beach there. He was there to recover from all of his pre-film obligations, but he also was firmly convinced that his movie would be a total disaster. He was also there with a guy you might have recognized, a man named Steven Spielberg, who had just finished his film, The Close Encounters, of the third kind. Over dinner, uh, Lucas received a phone call. Star Wars was a success beyond all of their wildest expectations, and it was already beginning to, to uh, evolve into a phenomenon. And so the next morning, Lucas was starting to feel pretty good about himself, and he and Steven Spielberg, while making Sandcastles of all things, uh, were out talking about what might be the next film project that they would take on. Spielberg told him, I wanna do a James Bond film. He says, don't waste your time. <laughs> Lucas says, I've got a better film than that. Have you ever heard of The Lost Ark? Noah's Ark, said Spielberg. No, 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 not Noah's Ark. Lucas then began describing the story of what he called the Raiders of the Lost Ark, crafted from an idea that, according to Wikipedia anyway, uh, was was birthed in his mind through his childhood dentist. Lucas's version of the story begins in 1936 with Indiana Smith, whom he named after his favorite dog, A famous archaeologist recruited by the American government to find the long lost Ark before the Nazis could find it It had not been in appearance for 3,000 years since the time of King Solomon. Adolf Hitler Hitler wants to recover the Ark of the Covenant uh, because in doing so he would legitimize himself as the coming new messiah, fulfilling his thirst for world domination. Spielberg loved the idea for the film. And after just a few months of talking through the possibilities, Steven Spielberg joined the project with one condition. He absolutely hated the name. He hated everything about it. Indiana Smith was out. Jones was used instead. And so that was the box office smash, how it was born, Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark. It became the highest-grossing film of 1981, earning approximately $330 million worldwide. It won five Academy Awards. It won seven Saturn Awards. And since its release, it's grown in esteem to the point that many people now consider it the best movie of all of the 1980s, one of the greatest action-adventure movies of all time, and is even on that list of the greatest movies of all time. All originated from a grand story told by a dentist to try to get a kid to sit in the chair and stop squirming. Around. Well, you might see this coming, but you really know this is a story that's much bigger than that. If that's the origin story, then, then there's something missing. It's actually one of the most fascinating stories in all of the Bible. So if you're watching from home this morning, if you're here in this room, my name is Pastor Milo. It's my first time meeting some of you. That would be great. Uh, But I want you to know that today we're going to look into a passage, the real story of what the History Channel calls one of the greatest ancient mysteries of all time, the story, the real story of the lost ark. So open up your Bibles if you've got one this morning, and I hope you do. Uh, If you've got a digital device, if you have a phone, I give you full permission to use your phone this morning. If you're watching from home, use a tablet, use something like that. Find your way to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'll be in the new international version this morning if you're using a digital device. I want you to be able to follow along. 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. David again brought together all able people of Israel, 30,000 men. He and all of his men went to Bala and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. So if you're watching from home and you're new with us today, we are, we are in this sermon series on the life of David. The toughest kid in all of Scripture, certainly. Uh, the, the most celebrated king in all of Israel's history. And the one who gets to carry the title, the man after God's own heart. And the life of David is the longest account and the longest presentation of a single life in all of ancient literature. Not just the Bible, in all of ancient literature. And therefore a tremendous resource for us to look at how the ancients saw, how it would actually go through, and how we would how it, would it takes for us to make it or break it here on this planet. How to live a life here on this planet. And today we come what might be the highest of all things in David's journey, David's story that we need in our lives, that is the immediate holy presence of God. Not just a belief about God, not just ethical virtuousness, not just a moral compass by which to navigate life, but the actual presence of God. The immediate, the face of God, the experience of God, knowing God himself. Now all of this revolves, all of this passage revolves around the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant. And here we see David is mobilizing 30,000 men in search of the lost Ark. So we bear to ask the question, what is the Ark? What is the Ark? So the Ark is a wooden chest. It's about 4 feet long, 2 feet wide, 2 feet deep. The box is overlaid with gold. It has a lid of pure gold on the top and that's called the mercy seat with two angelic figures cherubim facing one another engraved there in gold on top of the mercy seat so this chest this this box it weighs a lot it weighs a ton why would the ark be so significant the ark of the covenant is the central piece of furniture in the tabernacle. This is the place of worship for the Israelites. And it's not just in the holy place, but it's in the back of the holy place, called the Holy of Holies. And in that room, in that space, it's the only piece of furniture there. And over the ark, between these two cherubim, these two angelic figures, appears the Shekinah glory of God. Over the ark is the infinitely beautiful, holistic presence of God. The immediate, personal, raw, royal presence of God. Over the ark would appear the face of the transcendent God. And that is what David, David, not just the king over one or two or three tribes, but David, the king now, coronated king over all 12 tribes of Israel, that is what David wanted. And he knows that he will not make it without that. And so David must go out and find the lost ark. So first let's look at the blueprints of really how this ark is designed. This is from Exodus chapter 25 beginning in verse 22. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant of the law I will meet with you and I will give you my commands for the Israelites. So the significance of the ark is that it would be the place where God promised to meet with his people. Now, Scripture also documents for us that the Israelite leader Moses, that he met once with God on a place called Mount Sinai. And when he did so, the Israelites set up a boundary around the base of the mountain, an entire space around the base of the mountain to protect themselves from the glory of God. In fact, they even put out snipers. I mean, they were archery snipers, but they were snipers to make sure that nobody crossed that line. No person, no animal would cross that line and and invade the holiness of God. This is around an entire mountain. And so now, as we see the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, the brilliance of God would now be contained and concentrated in a two-foot-by-two-foot-by-four-foot space. They were even afraid to look at it rightfully so the instructions were given in numbers chapter 4 is recorded by moses that god had said that anyone who touched the ark or even looked at the ark directly would surely die so the ark was kept hidden and out of sight at all times in the tabernacle behind the holy of holies behind the curtain Only the high priest was allowed to go behind this curtain and only under very specific circumstances. And because the tabernacle was designed to be a portable structure, God gave them very precise instructions about how this ark was to be moved, how it was to be transported. that work was given to the Kohathites. The Kohathites were a specific group of priests that this was their job. They were going to move the ark. And they had to move the ark, get this, without seeing it and without touching it. They had to move, transport the ark without seeing it and without touching it. How on earth are they going to transport the ark? Well, if they're going to move it without seeing it, what they would do is they would approach the ark, holding up a curtain before them. And they would walk forward together and approach the ark together. And then they would look and lie that curtain down above and cover the ark. Numbers 4 says they would then wrap the ark in that curtain. How would they move the ark without touching it? Well, on each side of the ark, there were golden rings that were placed there that you would take a wooden pole and you'd be able to slide it through those rings. And in doing so, with the, with the ark wrapped in the curtain, then the Kohathites would then pick up the ark and place it on their shoulders, pick up the poles and place it on their shoulders, and lift the ark and move the ark, transport the ark with never touching it. The work of the Kohathites today, if we think about it today, it would be very similar to a bomb disposal expert. They, they don't want to touch anything. Do I touch the red wire or the blue wire? They don't want anything to do with it. They have to be very, very precise. And all of this communicated very powerfully, the significance and the indescribable, incomparable, untamable nature of the raw and royal presence of God. So what happens when the ark is present and with God's people. Well, there's many remarkable stories written in scripture for us about the ark. Stories of God's power breaking out and extraordinary things happening. The ark is is central to the legendary story that most of you know about the battle of Jericho as it's described in the book of Joshua. It mentions that in the siege of Jericho that the Israelites hear from the very voice of God himself telling them, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. And then he gives them these instructions. This is from Joshua chapter six, beginning in verse three. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear the sound of the long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. (laughs) Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up And everyone will go straight in. And the God of Israel advises them to march seven times around the city with the ark at the head of the parade. And with the completion of the seventh time around, seven priests blowing seven trumpets all together, the walls of the city crumbled and they fall down. And the Israelites' army does what? They they mount an assault and they go in and they take the city. And in doing so, the fame of Joshua, the fame of the God of Israel, the fame of the Ark of the Covenant spread throughout all of the land. It is known by everyone. That's what happens when the Ark is with God's people. What about when the ark is with the enemy? On one occasion, documented by the prophet Samuel, after a battle in which they'd been defeated by the enemy, Israel decided it might help if next time they went into battle, they took the ark with them. Now, this was pure superstition, nothing else. Like holding onto a lucky rabbit's foot. Here we have people who weren't willing to have God in their lives, trying to invoke his help because they were experiencing times of trouble. These were people who were not willing to have God in and dwelling in their lives, who were experiencing times of trouble, and so they thought that they would be able to invoke his help on their behalf. It didn't work. God's people were defeated again. The enemy Philistines captured the ark and put it in the temple of Ashdod, where they had built an idol for their fake god named Dagon. The Philistines were delighted. Not only had they defeated God's people, they had captured their god. But God, the god of the Ark of the Covenant, and the covenant that it represents, is never captured. Read this. This is from 1st Channel 5, verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it up beside Dagon. This is the fake God. When the people of Ashad rode early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there again was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. And that is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashad will step on the threshold. Do you remember hopping down the sidewalk as a kid? We've got young children. You hop down the sidewalk and you make sure that you don't step on the what? Don't step on the cracks. You play the same game that my kids are still playing today, and there's a song that goes with it. It says, don't step on a crack. You're going to break your mother's Back. Don't step on the line, you'll break your mother's spine. You have to believe at the origin story somehow of that poem that that there was someone in town, there was someone in that community, there was an old lady, a young lady, someone was walking down the sidewalk. She stepped on a crack, she slipped, she tripped, she fell, something hit her on the head. I don't know, but she probably broke her back. Would you agree? She probably did something to her spine. And all the kids in the neighborhood talked about it. This Philistine idol, Dagon, had fallen and it lies smashed on the floor. And it says here, from that day on, none of them were willing to step on the threshold. You see, in their community, in their neighborhood, they had a different saying. Step on a crack, you break your mother's back. Step on the threshold and the Shekinah glory of God will demonstrate itself through the Ark of the Covenant and it will lay you down, smash your face with the power of God onto the ground with such force that it'll crack your skull and sever your limbs from your body. Step in the dirt, you'll tear your father's shirt. The people of Ashod decided they want nothing to do with the Ark. They would better get rid of it. So they send it to the people in the next town, Gath. When the ark arrives in Gath, the people got sick, and so they send it on to the next town, Ekron, where the same thing happened. What should we do with the ark? The enemy Philistines began to ask one another. This God of Israel is powerful, and he is clearly against us. And so they consulted their counselors, and the counselor said this, if you try to fight against Israel's God, you will never win. Get rid of the ark. So where's the ark now? According to 1 Samuel chapter 6, they decided to put the the ark on an ox cart. And so they tied the ox cart to the oxen and then sent them off in the direction of Israel's border. Without any assistance, without turning to the left or to the right, Scripture tells us, the ark ends up in the fields of a town called Beth Shemesh. Did you catch that? Wait a second. If this were modern day, it would be like the enemy having defeated the United States on some battlefield somewhere, and through an unlikely choice of events, all of a sudden, they now have the Air Force One jumbo jet, the President of the United States, under their control. And, and bad things start happening in that country. And so they decide this was a bad move. And so they decide to send it back. And after a month or so, regretting their decision, they decide to fuel up the jet, train a golden retriever, to sit in the pilot seat of the plane. And then, from an undisclosed location, a specifically chosen location that has a runway aimed in the general direction of the United States mainland, they cover the joystick of the jet. They cover it in peanut butter and put the dog in it. And then they close the door, hoping that the dog will lick the joystick. And wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it? The jumbo jet roars to life. The plane takes off going down the runway and flies away. And then to everyone's surprise, to everyone's surprise, Air Bud lands the plane, the presidential plane. He lands it and taxes it to the hangar there, Andrews Air Force Base. Now who's a good boy? This story is bizarre. What happens here is truly unbelievable. The brilliance of the almighty God Symbolized and even encapsulated some way in the Ark of the Covenant is newsworthy, it's evident, and it's radiating out across all the land. And then something happens. Then something happens that would make anyone pause, would make anyone with any sense at all think twice before coming anywhere near the Ark. 1 Samuel 6, verse 13 says this, Now the people were harvesting their wheat in the valley. When they looked up, they saw the ark, and they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. And the people, they chopped up the wood of the cart, and then they sacrificed the cows or the oxen as a burnt offering to the Lord. That large rock in which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Bethshemesh, putting 70 of them to death, because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow that the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Bethshemesh asked, "Who can stand in the presence of the Lord this whole So the Ark of the Covenant finds its way to the house of a man called Abinadab, and there it remains, neglected for a generation. There the lost Ark collects dust, and while it's there the people of Israel demand a king, and the nation of Israel crumbles under Saul's leadership. Who will bring back the lost So we come back to David. Yes, I'm aware it's taken us a while to get back here. So we come back to David, and David has enlisted thirty thousand troops to go with him to retrieve this lost Ark of the Covenant. The Covenant, excuse me, the Ark of the Covenant that was abandoned in 1 Samuel chapter six and has not been spoken of again for thirty chapters. Twenty years or more have passed now, and Israel during this time did Israel have a belief in God in general? Yes. Did Israel during this time practice obedience and ethical behavior at times? Yes. Did Israel have a basic moral compass by which they could live and navigate their life by? Yes. But Israel was not experiencing the present powerful, joyful, mystical existence of God in their everyday lives. So David, he was going to get the ark back. David was going to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. 2 Samuel 6, verse 2. He and all of his men went to Bala and Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, with harps, with lyres, with timbrels, sistrums and a cymbal. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now this was quite a party. There's 30,000 people in all of them. The party is rocking. There's 30,000 people all dancing and singing together. The procession started out well. But then something happened that entirely changed the mood of the party. The oxen, while they're pulling the cart, they stumble and, and causing the ark uh, to, to lurch over. And as the oxen stumble, Uzzah reaches out. He puts his hand up to steady it. And when he touches the ark, he dies on the spot. Why did this happen? Picture yourself at the back of the procession. You're there. You're you're banging your tambourine. All of you. I just imagine all of you having tambourines, banging them. Now, this group, you could never bang your tambourine on two and four. It's just impossible. There's no way that you're going to be capable of doing that. But you're in the back. you're You're banging your tambourine. And ahead of you, there are thousands of people. And suddenly, the procession grinds to a halt. From the front to the back, the music stops. And you, quietly... Suddenly stop banging your tambourine. What in the world has happened? The news spreads through the crowd. Someone has died. Uzzah touched the ark. Nobody likes this. Even David is offended by it. Read verse 8. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. Judgment for casually dismissing God's instructions is what will happen when we are in his true, perfect, and holy presence. This is actually the whole point of the story. God says, I will meet you at the ark. So being next to the ark and being in the presence of God there next to the ark. And so how could anyone ever survive? Remember how they said that? How will anyone ever survive the presence of God or the presence of a God like this? That's the question. You and I are asking today, what are the rules around the ark actually telling us? So the rules, the instructions that surround the ark are telling us something. There's a lot of rules, there's a lot of regulations all about the ark, but what do they teach us? The ark was to be treated differently, very differently. Have you ever seen a video or seen a picture of people from other religious backgrounds when they have the opportunity to be close to one of their, their relics or one of their, their, their holy things? What do they do? Have you ever seen it? What do they do? Everybody wants to touch. They all reach out. They'll take their handkerchiefs and they want to rub their handkerchiefs against it. Or, or they want to touch it or they want to kiss it or they, 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 they'll uh, want to rub it or everyone will throw money at it. Everybody wants to pray to it. Because the power or the deity or the God that it represents is flattered. If you reach out with your religiosity and with your devotion, if you touch the relic, if you show your devotion in that way, the deity will bless you. So the ark is actually treated entirely in the opposite manner than any of the other holy relics and holy artifacts of any other religions and how they were to be treated. Why? Why? Well it's not just because it was untouchable. Think about where the ark is supposed to be located when it's in its proper place there in the tabernacle. The only way to approach the ark, the only way to make your way from the entrance of the tabernacle to go into the ark, the only way to be able to get there was to go through or go past or go by an altar. And at that altar is where you make sacrifices. And the only person who was ever supposed to approach the ark was the priest, the high priest. And he would only do so only after he had done what? Only had made a sacrifice. So what are the rules around the ark telling us? In other religions, you can reach out with your merits. You can reach out with your morality. You can reach out with your religion, and you can appease your deity. But the Ark of the Covenant is God's way of teaching us something. But there is a chasm between God and humanity. There's a huge chasm between the two. An enormous space that cannot be crossed. And not only can you not span the gap, not only can you not bridge the gap, but God will not bridge the gap in the other directions. God will not snap his fingers and say, let's just let bygones be bygones. He says, no, there must be a sacrifice. There must be a payment. A debt must be paid. And millions assume that if there is a God, that he must be a God who accepts and affirms everyone. But that is not the God, not the God of the Bible. No, such a God is simply a figment of the human imagination. And have you ever truly considered the implications of a God who simply will not tolerate anything, any level of disrespect to His law, to His commandments, to His holiness? Have you ever considered what it will mean for you and for me to come and stand before the presence of a God like that? You might be saying, I don't want any part of a God like that. I don't want anything to do with a God who judges people in this way. And if you look here, and if you look at this story, you can place yourself in David's shoes because that's exactly where David is. He's angry because he doesn't like what God has done. Maybe there's something in your life that has left you saying, why did that happen? What were you thinking, God? What are you doing? And you've been struggling to come to terms with him. And it's caused you, like David, to be angry at God. Verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. If this is what God is like, I don't think I can ever be near him. And I'm not sure if I even want to be near him. This is David speaking. Remember, friends, this is David, the man after God's own heart. At this point in his life, at this moment of crisis, he is angry with God. And let's not miss it. God allows him to do so. God allows him to do so. God allows him to wrestle with his thoughts. For three months, Scripture tells us to wrestle with his thoughts. And you may be here this morning, maybe you've been wrestling for a while, and it's not two months, it's not three months, it's two years, three years, 30 years. And God is allowing him to wrestle. He felt like he'd rather be far from God than he would like to be near him. I can't live with a God who does things like this. I don't want the ark anymore. You give it to obed Edom. Here's what happens. You take offense at something God has done, and instead of walking closely with God, you keep Him at what you think is a safe distance away. But now you are missing out on the things that could be yours, the blessings that could be yours. We're going to see that in just a second. Do you see what's going on here? God's presence begins to have an effect on Obed Edom, this inhabitant of the city of Gath. Does that name mean anything to you? The city of of Gath. Goliath. Goliath, the Philistine giant slayed by David in his youth was a Gittite from Gath. And the great irony here is that Obed-Edom, presumably living among Israelites as a a God-fearing man, is the near relative of Goliath, the man who dared to defy the armies of the living God, now has the presence of the living God dwelling within his own home. You've got to assume that when the other Israelites, they saw what happened to Uzzah, they looked at each other. They touched their nose and they said, not it. I don't want anything to do with this. And then when they take it there and they place it at his home, they say, that guy's a goner for sure. He's not going to make it out of this. But Obed-Edom, the near relative of Goliath, the man who defied the armies of the living God, now has the presence of God dwelling within his home, while the man after God's own heart, living in the palace of the king, the shepherd boy David, is not experiencing the closeness of God at all. Now, if that's your position this morning, you face a choice. And the choice that you make will determine the future course of your life. Either you will remain offended at God or you will seek the face of God. Either you will recognize the gap that exists between humanity and God and remain angry about it and turn away. Or you will recognize the gap and seek the face of God. So how are we to seek God's face? Verse 12, it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with great rejoicing. David has joy because the same God who is terrible in judgment is also wonderful in blessing. He is powerful to judge those who defy Him and He's powerful to bless those who seek Him. The two actually go together and this is why David in the psalm says, serve the Lord with gladness, with rejoicing and with trembling. But you can only know the blessings of God if you come unto him in a way that he has prescribed. In a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 15, we learn how that David gathers the Kohathites together. And he says, in effect, we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant home, but we're going to do it God's way. In verse 13, it says, when those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. The Kohathites were coached up in a manner to properly carry the ark. They were scolded for losing track of the ark for losing the ark in the first place and then losing its significance in their lives. Not only had the ark been lost, but the pursuit of God had been lost in Israel. In their lives, it was no longer being changed. They were no longer pursuing God. They were reminded of the seriousness and the great responsibility of their role in the process. So they got their hearts right. They cleansed themselves. And they approached the ark in a proper manner. They take a deep breath, I assume, with sweat streaming down their face. They know what's happened. And they insert the poles and the hooks into the rings. And then they lift it onto their shoulder. And Scripture tells us they move forward in unison. One, two, three, four, five six and they freeze David was leading them to bring the ark of the covenant but to bring it home the lost ark to bring it home in a proper manner in the described manner remember the story would you remember the story of how the walls of Jericho came tumbling down what did they do They went six times around the walls of Jericho. Six times they went around. And then they stopped. And what did they do? They blew the trumpets. They played the horns. And they offered sacrifices before the Lord. And we learn from 1 Chronicles 15, what they do here, what David does is he leads them. He humbles himself before the Lord. He dances before the Lord with all of his might. And then they they sacrifice seven bulls. They sacrifice seven fattened cows because he's changed his heart. He says, that we're going to bring the ark to Jerusalem, we're going to do it God's way. And he dances before the Lord with all of his might, it tells us. It's a very undignified thing for a king to be doing. And as the king dances, and as the trumpets sound, and as the smell of the sacrifice surrounds them, the glory of God was made known for all of Israel to see. The lost ark was coming home. The presence of God was coming and returning to dwell among them once again. The Raiders of the Lost Ark was released in 1981. I was born in 1981. For a number of reasons, I never saw the movie growing up. I was quite completely and blissfully unaware of its existence all together. That was until 1991 when my family went on a family trip to Disney World. And, and, and we went there and we rode the rides. It really is a small world after all. Uh, we got our pictures taken with Mickey and with Minnie. And, and then we went into this amphitheater and saw this live show called The Indiana Jones Experience. And it was impressive. It was incredible. There was people repelling down from the rafters, falling down. There was gunfights everywhere. There's explosions going off, erupting all over the place. They even had a full-size World War II plane on the stage, propellers spinning, and it looked like it was going to fly out over the audience. And then they had this, this treasure chest. And they were calling it the Ark. And after all the dust had settled, Someone dared to open the ark and look inside. And just the sight of whatever it was that they saw there inside blinded them and killed them, and all of a sudden, all the people in the room started cheering. What is going on? As a church kid, I'm trying to figure out what? Is this in the Bible? Are there Nazis in the Bible? What is happening? No, there's not any Nazis in the Bible. While, yes, there are still archaeologists that are still searching the Middle East for this lost box, the Ark of the Covenant, which has been missing since the days of King Solomon, the presence of God is not lost. The glory of God is not missing. King David here leads his nation And he tells his people, we are going to bring the ark to Jerusalem and we are going to do it God's way. We are going to bridge that gap that exists between God and humanity in a manner that God has laid out for us to do so. And today the gap still remains. The chasm, the valley between God and man still exists. And God, yet, he calls us to draw near to him. But he's going to remain steadfast. There must be a sacrifice for you to come to me. There must be atonement for me to dwell with you. Will you draw near to God? Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up the meeting of ones together, so some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. The God of the universe has made a way. He created a way. One way, his son Jesus. His way, the perfect way, was a way of the perfect sacrifice. The blood of Jesus creates a way of faith. It creates a way of hope. It creates a way of love. It creates a way of joy. The blood of Jesus has made a way for us to be in the very presence of God, to experience the Shekinah glory of God, the brilliant, the beautiful face of the Heavenly Father. Moses, when he was on Mount Sinai, he was only permitted to see the back shoulder of God while he was hidden away in the cleft of the rock. The priest was only permitted to approach the Holy of Holies with a veil, a curtain between him and God's glory. But, friends, New Testament church, Christian, when Jesus dies on the cross, when he is there on the cross, the veil is torn in the temple in two from the top to the bottom, torn apart. I'm not in this for the back shoulder of God. I'm not in this for a sideways glance through a curtain. No, I want to be when I can see the full face and look on the full face of God. Will you look into his wonderful face? Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to hope. And let us spur one another along. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for bridging the gap between God and man. Lord, we claim your son Jesus this morning. And through the power of Jesus, Lord, we ask you to be present with us, to change our lives, to give us the raw emotional connection to a holy God. We do not deserve it, Lord, but you have made a way. And we trust, Lord, that we can spur, be spurred on together this morning for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray.